The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the eighth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise <coughs> to you, O Christ. We confess our... All right, if you could look in your bulletin at the gospel reading or open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. This is one of the most important texts in the gospel of Mark. It's a, it's a real big turning point. Jesus, a beginning here with Mark 8, is going to start adjusting his disciples a view of who he is. Now, leading into this story, and this is, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see this. If you're looking at the bulletin, you won't because it's not in there. But there's a real kind of weird story that shows up right before our gospel reading today. And it's this story of Jesus healing this blind guy at Bethsaida. Let me read it to you. Uh, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when Jesus had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on the blind guy, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. This is kind of weird. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So it's kind of a weird story. It's like uh, Jesus is going to heal this guy. Uh, He starts doing it. Didn't take all the way. Like, hey, you know, it's almost like an eye doctor, like Dr. Agenbrook, checking his vision. You know, what do you see? Uh, well, I can see stuff now, but it's real hazy. It's like, you know, a, 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 it looks like I can see people, but they look like trees. And so then Jesus does it again. He lays his hands on him again. And then he's completely healed. And Jesus says, okay, good. Go home. Don't tell anybody uh, what happened to you. What's the point of that? Well, I think the point of that is that's leading right into this story. So, I mean, it it happened, right? Mark remembers this happening, or Mark's source, one of the disciples who were there, remembers this happening, tells Mark about it. And Mark thinks, that's a great story to put at the front of this story that we're going to look at today. Because Jesus is going to be, uh, in a sense, restoring sight to his disciples, to uh, Peter, specifically is the one he interacts with. And it's going to happen in stages, though. Like Peter, he's going to show Peter who he is, but Peter's, it's not just this one simple answer. Peter's going to get it, but he's going to get it kind of like a guy with bad vision, sort of sees it, but not really. And then Jesus is going to restore, he's going to do a double healing. He's going to try and fix Peter's vision further. It's actually, 
Uh, I'm going to point out to you from the uh, reading this morning, the gospel reading, there's three stages here that the disciples have to go through before they understand who Jesus is and who they are in relationship to him. And a lot of us go through these stages too. And so I may be talking about these three stages, but just right up front, let me say this though. It's, it's not cut and dried. I mean, this is not like, you know, three stairs that you go up to to get to the proper view of Jesus. All of us kind of bounce around in between these stages from time to time. But it is, there's kind of three levels here. So I'm gonna talk about the three stages of coming to know Jesus uh, here in uh, Mark chapter eight. And the first stage is this, recognizing the true Messiah, it's Jesus. The second stage is accepting the Messiah's true mission, which is suffering, that's an additional stage. And then the third stage is joining the Messiah's path, which is the fellowship of his suffering, uh, you know, us sharing in his suffering with him. So first stage, recognizing the true Messiah. Let's look at 27 through 30. Let me read that again to you. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. That's what Herod thought, remember? Others say Elijah. Remember the Old Testament prophesies, the book of Malachi prophesies this, that before the Messiah comes and the new creation begins to happen, Elijah is going to come back first to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. So some people are saying, well, great things are coming, and Jesus is like the guy who's preparing the way for these great things to happen. Some people say, though, you, you know, you're uh, one of the prophets, like you're just a great prophet, like you're Isaiah, or you're our days Isaiah, or our days Ezekiel. And then Jesus asked them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, that's in Greek, you are, you are the Messiah, is what he says. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So what does Peter mean when he says to Jesus, you're the Messiah? What does he mean? Um, Jesus is, uh, spoiler alert, the Messiah. Peter, though, Peter believes that, that Jesus is the Messiah. But Peter doesn't know what, Peter has an idea of what Messiah is that's not necessarily Jesus' idea. For Peter, and many first century Jews, most of the first century Jews anticipated that a Messiah was going to come at some point. They all didn't. And they all didn't have the same idea. Some of them thought it would be kind of a dual Messiah, like a king Messiah and a priest Messiah would work together. But many, many Jews of Jesus' day, in fact, the majority of them thought that at some point, God is going to send a new anointed one, a new King David, to come and beat the Romans, just like David beat Goliath. Kick out the bad guys and establish the kingdom here where we, Israel, will be free once again. We'll be free. No more Romans, no more Herodians. The temple will be purified. This is one thing that, that many Jews thought the Messiah was going to do is purify the temple so we can go and worship God there in holiness. And the Messiah is going to sit on the throne and drive out our enemies and we will once again be a free people. This is kind of Peter's dream. I want to be free. How can we get out from underneath Rome? And you guys know this. You see this play out through Peter's career all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane where this is it. This is the time when the war starts. This is the time when we rebel. The revolution begins tonight, Peter thinks. So Peter thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. He's right about that. But he thinks that Jesus is going to be a warrior king, like David, who's going to kick out all the bad guys. Peter is a Christian. If you are, if you are at stage one, where all you do is recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, 
but you're not really sure what that means and you've got some bad ideas about what that's, what, what that, what, what that's gonna look like. You are still a Christian. The main thing is Jesus. Is Jesus God's chosen one to rescue the world? There's lots of fake, fake messiahs. I mean, this is important because there's tons of fake messiahs on offer. I mean, we don't usually, usually use the word messiah for this sort of person, but I guess maybe except in uh, psychology, there's a, there's a messiah complex. But I mean, there, there, there are people out in our world today who want you to think that you need them to fix your life. That if they aren't, if you don't give them the power that they need, that you're in big trouble. These people pretend to be messiahs. They want your messianic hopes. And it's easy to think like this because we all want things to be better, right? We all want the Romans to be gone. We all want to be free. Um, I mean, there are lots of different ways these people show up. Some of them are politicians. Some of them are influencers. Some of them are moneyed people. Some of them are business people. Some of them are entertainment people. They all kind of want you to believe that you need to go along with them for your life to be better. The most popular Messiah, though, in our culture is me, not Aaron Miller. Well, for me, it is. For you, it's you. The, the, the notion that I can fix things, that it's up to me, that if, if my life is going to be better, I'm going to be the one to make it better. And everybody should kind of recognize that I should, I, I should be in charge of my own life and because I'm the only one who can fix things here in terms of Aaron Miller. Sometimes if I start to think, well, I can fix other people too, that gets obnoxious. It bumps into your messianic complex and you fight back. But we all, almost all of us have messianic complexes where we think, me, the individual, I'm the one who knows best about how to take care of my life. I know what I need, I know what I want, and I should be free to follow and do what I think is best for myself. It's kind of, I mean, it's built into who we are as Americans. But... If you actually want to be saved, I don't mean like go to heaven when you die, it's a part of it, but I mean rescued from the brokenness that is your world. At some point, you're going to have to say there's no politician or business person or entertainment person or influencer or me that can make that happen. It's just not happening. Politicians have had power for a long time. Influencers have had power for a long time. I've had power over my own life for a long time, and my life is not better for it. There's only one Messiah, that's Jesus the Messiah. And what Peter has to, looking forward to the second stage, second and third stage here, Peter values Jesus for what Jesus he thinks can do for him. Jesus can get rid of Rome. And this is the way all, all good relationships start, right? When you meet your best friend, the person who's gonna be your best friend, or the, when you meet your spouse, almost always you go into that thinking, like what can this person do for me? This person makes me laugh, or this person makes me think, or this person makes me smile, or you know, this person makes me want to live, and this person gives me joy, whatever it is. That's a great way to start a relationship. Peter's starting the relationship with Jesus. Jesus, what can you do for me? But at some point, you have to start to value that person for who they are, and not just for what they do for you, but what they bring to the table intrinsically. Peter's gonna have to make that move now He's going to have to, this is going to get him to the second and third stages eventually, is recognizing that following Jesus is not about what Jesus can do for me, but it's about who Jesus is. It's about the value of him personally. Because if you say to Jesus, I need you to do X for me, then whatever X is becomes the Messiah, and Jesus becomes a tool to get you to that messianic experience. 
And what Jesus wants Peter and me and you to know is that he is the messianic experience. That he doesn't take us anywhere else. He's the apex. There are good things that are going to happen when you know Jesus. Point three, there are bad things that are going to happen when you know Jesus. But the main thing is to know Jesus. And Peter, whatever else he gets wrong here, and he's going to get a lot wrong just like me and you do, he gets this right. Jesus is the Messiah. And because of that, he's good to go. Now, Jesus tells anybody at the end of verse 30 there, he tells people, don't tell anybody that you, that you, know, that, that you know that I'm the Messiah. <laughs> you know, Peter says you're the Messiah, and then Jesus says, don't tell anybody that. Why would, why would Jesus say that? Doesn't he want us to evangelize? Well, uh, not Peter, though. Because again, Peter knows, what, Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has no clue what that means. And so just keep it under your hat for a while, Peter. You gotta get to stage two and stage three first. And stage two, he immediately takes him there. So let's look at verses 31 through 33. Jesus, you know, Jesus has this conversation with Peter, Jesus is the Messiah. He began to teach him that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He told them straight up, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and the baddies are going to kill me. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, this is stage two. Accepting the Messiah's true mission, which is suffering. Stage one is accepting the Messiah, Jesus. Stage two, once you're to that stage, is to accept that the Messiah's true mission is suffering. Man's plan is victory through strength. Jesus says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man's plan is, human's plan is, we are going to win when we get strong enough. We're gonna build up our strength, we're gonna build up our wisdom, we're gonna build up our financial resources, we're gonna build up our relevance, and then we will be in a position to win, to be whatever, and I, when I, just in general, whether we're talking about the church stuff or business stuff or trying to win a basketball game, you get stronger and you win. This is the way that humanity works. And Jesus says God's plan is actually not that way. God's plan is to win, but to win through suffering. This is, the, this is what's on God's mind, he tells Peter. The first stage Christian thinks that Jesus is going to solve all their problems, but the stage two Christian knows that Jesus' great accomplishment is losing. Jesus' great accomplishment is losing. The greatest thing that Jesus ever did was get defeated by the Romans. Not beat the Romans. That's what Peter wanted. That's why Peter is so psychologically conflicted in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's being asked three times at Jesus' trial, don't you know him? Jesus' greatest victory is getting killed by the Romans, is losing. This is his greatest plan. And this is our, you know, I mean, I should just say this right now, of course, is that this is our victory as well. Jesus dies so that he can win me and you. That's how he wins me and you. Not by being strong. Not by being wise, although he is strong and wise. Not by being rich, although he is rich. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Not by being relevant, although he is relevant. He's the most important human in the history of the universe. But by losing a rigged trial and being lynched. This is how Jesus wins. He wins by losing you're gonna to have to constantly remind yourself of this all the time, you and I are. Because our culture so much values winners that you're constantly gonna to have to say, I belong to the greatest loser of all time. To have all the power in the world, to have all the money in the world, and then he can't even get out of a trial with Pontius Pilate, 
a minor Roman regional official, to be able to call 12 legions of angels, and yet a handful of Roman soldiers in execution detail can nail him to a cross and kill him. It's the worst failure of all time. It's like if, if the NBA champions played a middle school team and lost. How does that happen? But this is his plan. You have to constantly remind yourself of this because if you follow Jesus, you will feel like you're losing. It's guaranteed. It's okay. It's built into the program. You only feel like you're losing because Jesus is a loser. We only feel like we're irrelevant because our Savior was a crucified construction worker. Now, there's more here, right? I'm not, for some of you, like, I am not talking about the resurrection right now. We can get there and we will get there. But right now, you have to sit in the fact, which is what Peter's struggling with, is like, that's why he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Because Jesus says, I'm going to lose. And Peter can't deal with it. And part of being a Christian is recognizing, accepting the Messiah's true mission, which is suffering. When you think about it, though, this is actually, if you don't think just about the way our culture thinks, if you think about the way the real world thinks, and yes, our culture and the real world are two different things. You should know that. It's easy to be like, this is kind of fake, and out there's the real world. Actually, out there's the fake world. And if people, I don't even think Christians, but if people would look at what, what is real, they would see this is not actually matching up with the culture. What's truly valuable? What is, what is more valuable? Somebody who can hit 35 home runs in a season? Or a mom who gives up her body and her time and to a large degree her sanity at points to raise a baby? Which one's more valuable? I don't really know of anybody who would say like, ah, moms, whatever, give me a 35, unless you're like a really passionate baseball fan maybe. And even then, like just a moment of reflection would tell you that, no, I'm here because there was a mom who gave up her body and her time and to a large degree her sanity her right to raise me. This sort of level of self-sacrifice that we, we all deeply value this. I know it's fun to watch a sports movie where, where, you know, where the, the, the team, you're, the, the, the main characters win, or a war movie where your country wins the war. But honestly, the movies where there's somebody who sacrifices their life to rescue people is the one that most deeply touches us. The one can fire you up for a few seconds. The, the, the other, though, you'll be thinking about it the next morning when you wake up, because it's tapping into something deep about who you are. The person who gives up their retirement to care for their parents who have dementia it's not fun at all, but there's something that taps into what's at the heart of the universe, self-sacrificial love, that you can only truly understand if you understand that our God is a God who became a human being to lose for us. It's the only way that sort of thing makes sense. And now, if at this point you say, well, yeah, okay, so I accept Jesus died on the cross, and that, makes, that has value inside of this room, that has value in my personal heart when I'm home alone having my devos. But out in the real world, it's politics that gets things done. It's money that gets things done. It's relevance that gets things done. Then you are still stuck in stage one Christianity. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm completely certain that you are confessing Jesus the Messiah. But you still haven't realized, you haven't grappled with this fact that no, that's not how things get done. There have been lots of rich people. There have been lots of politicians. There have been, again, lots of relevant people in the history of the world. And we are where we're at because they were unable to get us anywhere else. But whatever good we have, whatever amount, whatever self-sacrifice the Holy Spirit is working in your heart is only there because the Messiah Jesus has raised this. Or if you say, okay, I see how Jesus is suffering, that's important for me spiritually, 
But like in my real life, I need money, I need power, I need relevance. Again, it's stage one Christianity. You don't. You and I need Jesus. That's all we need is Jesus. If he gives you power, that's great. It's good when he gives good people power. If he gives you money, that's great. It's good when he gives good people money. If he gives you relevance, that's great. But that money, power, and relevance is not going to get things done, except to the extent that you give that money, power, and relevance away in Jesus' name like he gave himself away on the cross. Except to the extent that you see, and I'm I'm bleeding into point three here, except to the extent that you see that the money, power, and relevance that Jesus has given you have been a venue for the suffering that comes when you lose those things to other for the sake of Jesus. Peter wants Jesus to be a winner, big, powerful man. Set up your kingdom, make me your vice king. And Jesus says, literally, get out of my way, Satan. I'm here to win by losing. Point three, the third stage, joining the Messiah's path. First stage, recognizing the Messiah, Jesus. Second stage, accepting the Messiah's true mission, suffering. Third stage, joining the Messiah's path. To quote Philippians 3.10, I'll come back to this at the end of the sermon. The fellowship of the Messiah's suffering. Jesus has called us to join him in the fellowship of his suffering. This is scary and it's no fun. But you didn't come here this morning to not be scared. And I know that you didn't come to church this morning to have fun. Following the Messiah, the highest calling is the fellowship of Jesus, whatever that means. And a lot of times that's suffering. Sometimes, eventually, ultimately, it's resurrection power. But sometimes now it's suffering. Embracing life with the Messiah as the highest good. So he says in verse 34, I'm going to read verse 34 and 35, and then we'll talk about it just for a second. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So you know what that means, take up his cross. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. You have to remember, this is not like, this is not on an inspirational card that you just saw. When Jesus says, take up your cross, this is, Peter just said, you're not gonna die on a cross. This is before the crucifixion. This is before this became a powerful symbol. This is when the cross is an instrument of execution. It's actually an instrument of lynching. Only the lowest forms of life in the Roman Empire would be crucified. It was a slave's death. Philippians 2 makes this point. He took upon himself the form of slave, dying a slave's death, even dying on a cross. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's inviting them, let's go, we're all gonna get killed, and it's gonna be the worst death ever. They are, you Jewish men, they're gonna strip your clothes off and nail you up naked in front of everybody to die over the course of two or three days. Let's go. Let's do this. This is the funny thing when you read Paul. So if you, if you listen to a lot of Christian sermons, especially in America, a lot of it is like, here's Jesus. He's the Messiah. That's good. They're Christian sermons. How can he make your life better? How can he fix your marriage? How can he help you be a better parent? How can, how can he help you with your relationship problems? How can he help you best take care of your money? How can he help you be psychologically successful? But when you read Paul, there's none of that in there. Paul basically walks around the Roman Empire saying, Jesus the Messiah, God raised him from the dead. Let's go. Let's follow him. This is not going to be fun. We're all probably going to get killed. Nobody's going to like us. We're going to be shipwrecked. We're going to be in prison. We're going to be beaten. We're going to be left for dead. We're not going to have friends. Let's go. Let's do this because it's true. And the Christian church has lost this prophetic message, the stage three. Following Jesus is following the path of suffering. And you have to look it in the face. And you have to say the time, sometimes, it's not always suffering. 
A lot of you aren't suffering right now, but some of you are suffering very deeply. And that's not a failure. That's plan A. God has loved you enough to give you the gift of suffering. Philippians 1.29 says, this is one of my favorite verses, and I, and I, I, say, I quote this verse maybe once every three or four months. To you has been given the gift, Paul says in Philippians 1.29, not just to believe in him, that's a gift of God, but also to suffer for his name's sake. To you has been given the gift of suffering on behalf of Jesus. That's what Philippians 1.29 says, and that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. But note, it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's not some sort of Buddhist or medieval Roman Catholic monastic asceticism where I just need to be in pain because when I'm in pain, God's happy. That's nonsense. The point isn't the pain. The point is Jesus. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, but the payout is follow me. Following Jesus, sometimes there won't be suffering, but sometimes there will. Don't think that the times of no suffering are everything's going great and the times when you are suffering is failure. Following Jesus is the main thing. Think of it like this. Say you're married, and you're married to a spouse who develops dementia. You, you didn't actually ask for suffering. Your spouse didn't ask for suffering either. It's not something that you wanted. You don't join with that spouse, walking through your spouse through dementia and their eventual death. You don't live that life with them because somehow this suffering, that's, we've always wanted this. Makes me stronger, no pain, no gain. No, what you're there for is the spouse. You love the spouse. And wherever the spouse is, that's where you want to be. And when the spouse was happy and you were taking vacations and everybody was healthy and things were great with the kids and the finances were good, that was great. But the main thing was you were with the spouse. And now that the spouse is suffering and maybe doesn't even know you anymore and is basically ended the dreams of your retirement that were going to be nice and relaxing. You don't care because the spouse is the main thing. And when Jesus says, follow me, that's all he means is just come, I want to be with you and I, I want you to want to be with me. It's, the goal isn't suffering, the goal is Jesus, but be prepared because following Jesus is following the path of the cross. Don't think that it's a failure. To the extent Oh, but to highlight that, verse 35, of course, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. It's not Jesus doesn't lose to lose. Jesus loses, definitely. He's a sufferer, but he does it to win. He does it to rise from the dead. He does it so that he can be the king of the whole universe. The quest for power will always end in lack of power. Giving up power in Jesus' name will eventually end up in power. I mean worldwide power. The world belongs to you. All the money in the world belongs to you guys. All the relevance in the world belongs to you. And the fact that you don't have power or money relevance now is just a temporary blip on this path of following Jesus on the cross. But he will win. But to go with him means to give it all up now so that he can give it to you when he's good and ready. To the extent that I've lived for my own goals, to the extent that I've decided I don't want to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. I want to follow the Messiah, Aaron. I can give you concrete examples of how my wife and kids have suffered because I've made them suffer by choosing myself to be the Messiah and not following Jesus on this third stage path. To the extent that I've decided I want to win here at St. James, I want to be in charge. I want St. James to look like how I want it to look like. I can give you concrete examples of how you guys have 
suffered because of that. I've pulled benefit away from you by trying to be the Messiah myself. It's a great example just recently of this, somebody who's chosen the path of following the Messiah's sufferings. And that is, we got uh, uh, Mark in here from Russia. He can speak to this better than I can. Not right now though, Mark. You don't need to say anything. You need to sit there. Uh, but some of you guys uh, have, have followed the story of, uh, of Alexei Navalny, and um, he's, he's anti-Putin. Uh, I don't know if he was a politician. He ran for some elections, elections he was never going to win. Uh, he was poisoned um, uh, by, by Putin's regime. He went to Germany and recuperated and healed, and then he did something that people can't understand. He decided to go back to Russia, and he knew, I'm going to die. He knew I'm going to die, and he did. He did, he was just killed recently. What you're not really hearing, though, in this story, which of course you wouldn't hear because the world doesn't understand this, is that the reason why Navalny went back to Russia is because he came to faith in Christ around 2020. And he says, I mean, you can find interviews where he actually says this, there's correspondence between him and other his old friends, and he said this was hard because I was, I was he, he described himself as a very militant atheist, and all of his group were militant atheists. He comes to faith in Christ, and now he compromises his friendship with them. But there's this correspondence where he talks about this. A key verse for him were, was, and, and he talks about this in, in the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those who thirst, thirst and hunger after righteousness, blessed are those who suffer for the name of Jesus. And this is why he went back, is because he knew that the only way to beat oppressive, tyrannical political regimes was not to get more oppressive political power than they do, so you can shut them down, but to die. And his life has, even for those who aren't Christians, his life has become a testimony to the power of self-sacrificial death and what it does to undermine and weaken a regime. And nobody knows where it's going to go. He's not the only person that a politician across the world has killed to get out of the way. How much power will his death have just because he was famous and he was vocal? How much power will his death have because his wife says, I'm going back to? We don't know, but it taps into, and it's because he's a Christian, he insisted upon this. It taps into this third stage. Wherever Jesus goes, I will go. And I will win to the extent that I lose. I will experience resurrection to the extent that I experience the death of Jesus Christ with him. So that's all, this is the message from Mark 8 this morning is these three stages. Embrace Jesus. If you never get to the second and third stage, although you will, Paul says in Philippians, if you don't agree with me about the suffering, don't worry, God will reveal it to you too. But if you're not there yet, it's okay, you're a Christian too. But the second stage and the third stage are a part of knowing Jesus, not just recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, but knowing Jesus intimately. Embrace him, embrace Jesus the sufferer, and then embrace this shared life with Jesus. The path of the cross and the path of resurrection, the path of suffering and the path of glory, even when it means suffering and personal loss along with him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Amen. Let's pray. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the love and mercy that comes from only you and the fellowship that the Holy Spirit has created through baptism and faith with your son, Jesus, allow us, Father, to be Jesus' people, to be so united to him that wherever he's at, we want to be there too. We pray this in his name. Amen.